Good morning. I am Lynn Kitchens. I'm so happy to be with you today. So happy to continue to be looking at the life of David. And what a life David has lived so far. He's a boy who honored and trusted the Lord first. He's a shepherd who killed lions and bears, a teenager who was anointed king of Israel by Samuel, a teenager also who killed this military monster named Goliath with a slingshot. David was a gifted musician who played for Saul, the king of Israel. He was a cherished friend of the king's son, Jonathan, a loved husband of the king's daughter, Michael. He was a young man who succeeded in battle under King Saul everywhere he went. He was a warrior who had defeated Israel's enemy, the Philistines, more than any of Saul's servants. He was a hero who was highly esteemed in Israel. So the boy who honored and trusted God grew up to be a young man who honored and trusted God. And chapter 18 tells us that David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. But one day, David sitting there in, salt, in spears began banging into the wall behind him, hitting the wall behind him. Uh, he was playing the liar for the king to help him. When all that happened in his life, things began to change because these were deadly spears of jealousy being thrown at David. His Saul's evil jealousy of everything about David, that list I just read about David, all of those things really affected and took over Saul's heart took over his reasoning, took over his faith. Not only was Saul jealous of who David was and all his many accomplishments, but he saw David as a threat to his dynasty, his kingdom, being king over Israel. And so the king of Israel really became the king of injustice when it came to his relationship with David. Saul hurled those spears at David because Saul wanted David dead. And so now we're reading how David is on the run. He would be for over 10 years because Saul embraced his bitterness until the day he died. You know, many years ago, I was watching the show, and it was this neat idea where they said, okay, here's something you can do for a will. You can tape your will. You can make a video, and then you're speaking. All your loved ones are in the room, and you can say, I want you to have this, you know, Aunt Susie, because you did this for me, and I know you always love this table, and I want you. I mean, it could really be a special thing, a special time to honor those you love. But then this very elderly woman took advantage of the video in a different way, and I watched it on television, and it sort of gave me chills, and it really uh, broke my heart because she looked into the camera with this bitter, tight face and began to tell everyone that were her relatives how she hated them. She berated them. She told them every hard thing that she thought they had ever done to her. And then she said, laughing at the end, so none of you get any of my things. 
And I just, it was the saddest thing. Like Saul, she embraced that bitterness until the day she died. And I could tell from the video, she died a lonely, old, sad woman. What do we do when we're face to face with injustice? We can learn some things today from David when he was face to face with Saul. So we're going to look at Saul's pursuit of David. Today we're in chapter 24. We find David hiding in the strongholds of En Gedi. En Gedi means spring of the kid or that would mean spring of the young goat. Uh, it was on the west coast of the Salty Dead Sea where there is just about nothing green to be seen around there. There's so much salt in the Dead Sea and it affects everything around it. I have had the opportunity to go to Israel a few times with Christ Chapel and um, one of the men there decided that came from Christ Chapel that he would bring a golf ball because he was going to throw that golf ball into the Dead Sea and see just how salty it was. And would the golf ball float? The golf ball floated. In fact, you float in the Dead Sea. You can't get underwater if you try with all your might. But and Getty stands out in great contrast to all that deadness and the salt of the Dead Sea, even though this is sort of on the western shore of it. It is an oasis. It's a nature reserve because it has these fresh water springs and these lush vineyards. Um, I've actually been right in that spot with other Christ Chapelites standing right in that one place there that looks dry. It was a pretty exciting thing to do. This area was given to the tribe of Judah many years earlier. It was also a famous place, um, according to David's son Solomon, who became king. Because in the Song of Solomon, he mentions henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. And he mentions wisdom is like the palm trees exalted in the En Gedi. So that's the difference. Okay, so we hiked right here between, there were those kind of cliffs on either side of us. This is in a valley in En Gedi. And you look up there and don't you just imagine David hiding in there? I mean, this is the area where he was, and this is what it would have looked like. Um, okay, I gotta see. Okay, so these would be strongholds, and stronghold, the definition of that is just a fortified place of security. We all were thinking what a great place for David to hide, but not if your enemy has spies out watching your every move, which Saul did. And so in the strongholds of En Gedi, the unrighteous Saul caught up with righteous David. So let's look at that in chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. So last week we looked at, remember Saul had almost got to David in chapter 23. He was almost there on a mountain in Maon, but Saul was forced to leave because the Philistines were attacking the Israelites somewhere, which seems to be their favorite thing to do. 
When that battle ended, it seems like Saul immediately returned to the chase, immediately returned to seeking out, eliminating David, and he takes 3,000 men of Israel with him, 3,000 of the most skilled soldiers that Saul could find. How great is Saul's hatred of David. They knew David had 600 men in the area of the wild goat rocks, and this was a place that was special where a special species of ibex lived, and I think they still live there today. Okay, look at verse 3. And Saul came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So at night, if shepherds were in like a wilderness area, they would gather their sheep together and they would find some kind of rock enclosure where they could protect their sheep. They would make a low stone wall, you can see here, to keep the sheep from wandering. The shepherd would position himself out in front of the entrance of the sheepfold to guard against animals and thieves. And you could see how a cave with that low wall built in front of it would really do the trick. So this is where Saul comes. His chase brings him to the sheepfold. He enters a cave to cover his feet. So do you like how I changed that word there? Yes. The word relieve in this verse literally means to cover your feet, which think about it, that's what would happen when you would crouch down to relieve yourself in a robe your robe would cover your feet. At the same time, a little awkward to talk about, but okay. (laughs) Little did King Saul know that deep in the darkness of that cave was the bright hope of Israel just waiting for God's timing. Question, why was David, the anointed king of Israel, dwelling in a dark cave? Answer, because of someone else's sin. Has that ever happened to you? You know, you're going about minding your own business, walking with God, enjoying your life. Suddenly you find yourself living in the dark, confused and hurt because of some unfair act against you. The truth is unfairness will often pursue us while we live in this broken world. There will be Saul's around many corners. Your Saul could be in the form of a person, a place, a situation, an illness, a loss. So how do we endure injustice? We maintain our hope by trusting God's plans for us will be accomplished. It's accomplished in God's time. It's accomplished in God's way. And we know this is what David did to endure because he wrote Psalm 57 while he was in a cave hiding from Saul. So let's look at that on your verse sheet. David said, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He believed that. He believed injustice can't erase God's plans for my life. Look what else he said in Psalm 37. The steps of a man, they're established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. 
And we all know Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we may be in the dark about God's purpose and about God's timing, but God's plans for us still stand because his steadfast love and his faithfulness still stands for us. It will never change. And I think David clung to that truth too. Look back at his words in Psalm 57, 3. David said, God will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We can trust that. That's what guards his plans for our lives. Okay, let's look at verse 4. So Saul has entered the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Okay, first of all, did God really say, I'll give your enemy into your hand and you can do whatever you want to him? Do we see that anywhere in Scripture? No, you won't find that. I can see, though, can't you, why David's men would think that here? It was too good to be true. It was perfect. It had to be God's plans. The very man they were hiding from for so many years was right there. The one that wanted to kill David was right there. The very man they hid and ran from and made their life miserable was within their reach. And the most unbelievable thing was he was alone. When was Saul ever alone? He always had armies around him. Here, 3,000 skilled soldiers. He had his own bodyguards. But in this circumstance, even his own bodyguards would have given Saul privacy. And so there he is. But we have to recognize it seems here like David's men put words in God's mouth. They wanted to motivate David to do what they wanted him to do because they assumed it would be what God wanted him to do. They encouraged David, you can end your persecution by killing the persecutor this very minute. And it sure would have been the easiest way for David to end this constant turmoil in his life. But David would not respond to Saul's presence in this way because he knew this easy way was not God's way. 
But still, it seems like those hasty words of his men had a little bit of power to motivate David. And so he crawls over. He gets close enough to cut some of the robe of uh, Saul. It maybe looks something like this. Some people believe Saul may have taken his outer robe off and laid it somewhere against a rock. Would have made it easy for David to cut that piece off. But as soon as David cut that corner of his robe, his heart struck him. You know, clothing in the Old Testament often had symbolic significance. We've seen that. Remember a couple weeks ago, Jonathan takes off his robe, puts it on David to symbolize, I'm transferring the kingdom to you. And so when David cut a little bit of Saul's robe off. It was like he was trying to take some of the kingdom of Israel away from Saul before God had really given it to him. And so his heart struck him. This was God's anointed. He had no business doing that. We all know David was anointed by God to be king too, but who was anointed first? Saul was. And so in David's mind, until God, God made him king, he was going to honor and respect Saul's anointing. David understood that the judgment and the removal of Saul was up to God, that he needed to leave that in God's hands. And it says in the Hebrew, it says here that David persuaded his men. In the Hebrew, it says he was real harsh with his men. And said, why would you tell me to do this? No, don't touch him. Let him leave. It's like he was doing this to his men who just wanted to come forward and get rid of Saul. Instead, David lets him leave unharmed and totally unaware that his life was about to be ended at that moment. But David stopped it. Let's look at verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I won't put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and didn't kill you, you may know there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Don't you know, when Saul's walking away from that cave and hears the voice of David, it stops him in his tracks. And don't you know he turned around quickly? And when David stepped out of that cave and he saw it, it just shocked Saul. And don't you know when he saw a piece of his robe in David's hand, it shocked him even more. And don't you know when he saw David lying down on the ground, bowing before him. It broke his heart. It broke his heart. David saying, my Lord, the king, my Lord, the Lord's anointed, king of Israel, father. 
David points out two facts to Saul. I'm not trying to harm you, as people tell you. The proof, you were in a cave with me. The second proof, I cut off a piece of your robe. I didn't harm you. I didn't harm you in any way. Secondly, you are the one that wants to unjustly harm me. David made the case to Saul that he would not sin against Saul even though Saul was plotting to take his life. He pled his case like this before Saul and now he pleads his case before God because he wanted to go to the Lord himself knowing the Lord is the only fair judge here. He can decide the fate between you and me, Saul. Let's look at verse 12. David says, May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David's crying out for the Lord to avenge him and he does it by quoting an old proverb, out of the wicked comes wickedness. When David says that to Saul, he's sort of taking out a two-edged sword here. Uh, this proverb gives Saul a verdict of guilty and David a verdict of not guilty. Since Saul acted wickedly by pursuing David for his destruction, he's the wicked in the proverb. Since David refused to act wickedly in the cave and kill him, and everyone witnessed it, he is not wicked. David knows the Lord will eventually see all this and avenge him. And didn't you think it was interesting he calls himself a dead dog and a flea? Can a dead dog hurt you? Can a flea really hurt you? That's his point to Saul. I'm not going to hurt you. So why are you pursuing me? And so David's defense rests. And now there's a moment for Saul to respond. And Saul's plea is guilty as accused. Look at verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept and said to David, You're more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. You've declared this day how you've dealt with me and that you didn't kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know you shall surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands." Did your heart sort of break for Saul when you read this? There, there were those moments when we can remember Saul at the very beginning when he did have this kind of special heart. And so here he listens to David. And I think he says, is this your voice, David? Because he can't believe he didn't kill him. 
Everyone told him he wanted to kill him. He can't believe it. And he breaks down weeping because David calls him father because that's the kind of relationship they had at one time. They sat at meals together. He played his lyre for Saul when he was suffering. They celebrated battle victories together. And so Saul is overcome with emotion at the righteousness of David. He can't believe he had that chance and didn't kill him. And he says, who does that? That's why he wondered, is it really you, David? Who would do that? And overwhelmed by David's goodness, the king of Israel pronounced David as the future king of Israel. What? We read that and think, okay, no, that was humongous, that was huge. Saul had heard definitely that Samuel had anointed king earlier, that he was be a king to replace Saul. And Samuel told Saul, God's given the kingdom to somebody else. You've been rejected. But if you notice, did Saul ever act like he wasn't king anymore? No, he just kept right on. In fact, his pronouncement of who David was was David is an enemy. So for Saul now to pronounce David as a king was an epic moment. Unbelievable. Envision the reigning king of Israel standing outside of a cave, pointing at David and saying, this is the one divinely chosen to replace me. It legitimized David's right to the throne, and people heard it. People around him would have heard that. Many were listening. It made me wonder if some of his bodyguards, Saul's bodyguards and soldiers said, what, what, wait a minute. Why have we been given these last 10 years of our lives chasing this guy if you're telling us he's going to be king? That really attitude of Saul's didn't last very long, and neither did it with the soldiers. Another way we see Saul is convinced that David will be king is because he asked David to protect his lineage. You could see why. Because every king that came in power just about would have every descendant of the last king killed because they didn't want some relative showing up one day and saying, you know, I deserve that crown that's on your head. And so Saul says, don't do that to my family. And we know that David said no, and David didn't do it. And you'll probably read about that some other time. We have to admire David here. His faith, his patience, his wisdom with Saul, and especially his self-control in a dark cave when he was tempted to take matters into his own hands made me think when some unfair situation is staring us in the face and we are in the dark about it and it seems to go on and on, don't we feel temptations to take things into our own hands, to look for the easiest way out? But we have to ask, is it God's way? If I take matter into my own hands without seeking God's will, what are we saying about God? God can't handle this one, or I have a plan, or I need to avenge myself, or God's timing is too slow. Here's what would work. 
Instead, when we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, we rely on God to make it right. However long that takes, whatever all that involves, he may not intervene when we want, and he may not intervene exactly how we want him to, but we rely on the fact that God is just. We can depend on that. Look what Job tells us on your verse sheet, Job 12. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. Look what Psalm 37 says. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. What a promise. Face to face with injustice. I think these truths about who God is can bring us that peace that just passes understanding when we know this to be true about God. Okay, so Saul packed up his bags, went home, but look at verse 22. David did not. David swore to Saul he would protect his family, and then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David didn't trust Saul. He was wise not to because we have one chapter break, and then you're going to see in chapter 26, David uh, is running again with all his power in life to get away from Saul, who has his big army again and is trying to chase down David again. Saul's uh, injustice to David would show up now and then, all different places. This is true in our life. I mentioned that earlier. We have injustices come and go. So I thought we'd look at the do's and don'ts of facing those inevitable injustices in our lives. Uh, first of all, we don't want to be a Saul. And I confess, sometimes I do act like Saul. Here's some things we could keep in mind. First, don't assume that God is on your side. Remember last week, we, Saul found out David was hiding in Keilah. Remember that? And Saul tells everyone, oh, yes, good. God has given him into my hands. I can go get him there. Okay, we don't find any evidence that Saul sought God and asked him anything about his relationship with David. He just assumed that God was on his side. He assumed he was the innocent one, and he let his anger guide his whole life. You know, when justice, injustice surrounds us, if God isn't guiding us, our anger probably is. When we seek God first, we may learn that God has some things to teach us in the part we may have played in that situation. Look at Psalm 37, 8 and 9. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It tends to only do evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land or the promises of God. 
Okay, secondly, don't be a Saul. Don't gather others to join you on your bitterness journey. Saul had many bitter people surrounding him that he had put there. What did they think about David? They hated him. They hated him as well. They wanted him dead too. It's so easy to pass our bitterness on to others because as a victim, we want to make our case. We want to be justified. We want to prove we're right. And I think sharing our hurts in these dark times with a couple of friends, that's one thing. But advertising our hurts to get a big group of people in our bitterness camp, that's another thing. That's a Saul thing. Don't send out spies to gather more information when you're in the middle of injustice. Saul knew all about David because Saul had people working for him. Their job was to spy about everything connected to David. And we would never send out spies. Or maybe, or maybe we know people who could give us some more details about the situation that confronts us. Maybe we don't send them, but we can ask them questions. Maybe we can find out more unjust information. But in reality, this is like throwing fuel on a fire. It's like igniting bitterness, and there's really nothing helpful in doing that. Okay, we do want to be a David. Uh, not to say David always did everything right. In fact, I, my fear was you were going to hear this lecture and say, yeah, but there was injustice in chapter 26. I mean, the next chapter, next week, Sarah's going to cover. And he didn't handle it right at first. The good news is he recognized it. But in this story, we do see how many things David does right that can help us. Okay, first, do approach injustice with prayer and thanksgiving. How much wisdom is ours for the taking? How many bad choices we wouldn't make? How many heartaches we wouldn't suffer if we'd only go to God? I love that Lauren Daigle song, Look Up, Child. Here's some of the words. Where are you now, God, when darkness seems to win? Where are you now when the world is crumbling? Where are you now when all I feel is doubt? Where are you now when I can't figure it out? I hear you say, look up, child. Look up, child. You're not threatened by the war. You're not shaken by the storm, even in our suffering, even when it can't be seen. I know you're in control. Look up, child. Look up. I get that, but I'm not sure about being thankful during trials. But I don't think we have to be thankful for every injustice that comes our way. We're thankful that God's got it. We're thankful that it's in God's hands, that he loves us enough, that he cares about this issue, that he wants to take our pain, that he wants to ease our burden, that he's working for our good. You know, David voiced his praises in Psalm 57 while living in a dark cave in danger for his life. I think we can sing in our caves too. We have the same God. Look at Psalm 57, 6. 
This is David singing in his cave. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they've fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake in the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Okay, do beware of well-meaning counselors. I knew a friend who had just come to Christ. He was at the church, and he was excited and learning about what it means to walk with God. And he was in a parking lot, and this very elderly man uh, crashed into his car in the parking lot. And so this new Christian was very kind to him and helpful to this man who felt so badly. But he was telling my husband, you know, I'm very surprised because I've shared this story with some Christians and they've told me I should sue him and I could get a lot of money. Bad counsel. Well-meaning people, bad counsel. So we can seek the counsel of the godly but also seek God about their counsel. That's what David did. He's weighing his, the voice of his men are in his ears, and he's weighing what they're saying to him as he's approaching Saul in the cave. But then he presents that to God in his heart, and he's thinking, that's not God's will. That's not what God would have me do. So we obey God and his counsel over man. Okay, do respond to Injustice God's way and not man's way. Just like that last illustration, the world's ways and God's ways are very different. But since we live in the world, we often forget that and we kind of blur the lines between some things. And I thought, here's something to help us remember. Man's ways will usually be easier and be self-serving. God's ways usually take time and consider other people involved. If David had killed Saul in the cave, that would have been man's ways. Man's ways would have said, yeah, immediate gratification for you. God's ways only brought David more and more years of running away from Saul, more and more years of danger facing him, but he was rewarded for his patient endurance. We will be too in ways we never could have even considered. Facing injustice God's way involves patience, forgiveness, kindness, self-control. Those things are not the easy way. They're God's ways. They're the better way. Okay, do hold on to the evidence of your obedience. For David, it was a piece of fabric from a robe. For us, it may be a verse we're clinging to. It may be a prayer that we continue to pray about the situation. It may be a kind act that we did. It may be a note we send. It may be an opportunity for retaliation that we turned away from. It may be something we'd love to share with someone else that we choose not to. This is the evidence that will encourage us in our faith. We hold on to them, and they remind ourselves that we are counting on God 
to make the things right. Do use words that can soften a hardened heart. Wasn't David's words amazing when he first approached Saul? They were words of respect, and it changed Saul's heart for that moment, that time with David at the cave. If an opportunity arises for us to speak to someone who's treated us unjustly, if we use harsh words, there will be harsh results. If we use wise words, there will be wise results, even if it's only in our heart, even if our offender doesn't want to grab onto that, it will still bless us. Sometimes we can even choose not to use any words at all. And that takes even more self-control. <laughs> Instead, we talk to God about it. And we realize that was enough. That was enough for me. Uh, many, many years ago, I was reading a book, and this was kind of popular, and people were saying, you know, if you have something from your past that really still bothered you, you just go to the person and talk with them about it, and then you'll, you'll get well. You'll be better about it. So once I was visiting my mom, and um, I thought of this thing that always sort of bothered me that she said to me. And so we were alone in the basement. I said, Mom, let's talk about this. Do you remember this time you said this to me when I was younger? And I'll never forget her face, the deep sadness that came on her face. And then she looked at me and said, are these the only kind of things you remember about me, being your mom? And she ran out of the room. And I thought, well, that went well. <laughs> you know what I thought? I feel worse. And why did I put that on my mom? And that was harsh. Even though I said it very kindly, it was like I sort of pushed her over. It was awful. And I thought later, God said to me, you could have just gone to me with that, and I could have healed that. And that's what I began to do in those kind of situations. There are times it doesn't do the other person any good <laughs> to know something like that. Because what was my mom supposed to do with it after that? I put that burden back on her? So we went forward from there, and I quit doing those dumb things. Okay, do guard yourself against continued injustice. Saul had good intentions when he walked away from David at the cave, but he couldn't keep them. David showed wisdom that he didn't walk alongside Saul and return home with him to face more injustices. We show wisdom not walking alongside unjust people unjust places, unjust situations where more injustices await us. And I know sometimes we think, well, then it won't look like I did forgave this person if I sort of distanced myself. No, that doesn't matter. If you know that person's going to continue to treat you unjustly, it doesn't mean you don't forgive them if you choose not to be tied to them in all the things that brought about these heartaches. 
We need to guard ourselves against unfair people and things that can detour us, our energies, our ministries, our walk with other people, our walk with God. Because, like I mentioned, there are enough unfair things that will just show up in our lives that we don't need to tie ourselves to things where that is going to happen for sure. David walked away. The good news is God has rewards for us when we face injustice in faith. We are rewarded. Look at what James 1 tells us on your verse sheet. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God's promised to those who love him. Okay, I, I was curious about the crown of life. There are five crowns mentioned in the Bible. They are rewards given to believers in heaven for some special acts of faith that they did while they were here on earth. The crown of life is one of those. It's a reward we will receive for persevering, for enduring the trials and temptations that this world throws our way. And we think about David. What about him? Because he remained steadfast as he sang about in the cave. When injustices faced his life, he received two crowns. One crown he wore on earth, one crown he will wear in heaven. Let's do what David did. Let's face injustice in faith. Let me pray. Lord, you are good, and we praise you that you're good because we can leave things with you. We can rely on you, and we can sing in the midst of hard things because we know you love and work for us. Your steadfast love and faithfulness never fail. We give you praise for that. Give us the strength to believe it and walk in it. And we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.